Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 79 of the Liberty Cafe. It's a blessing to have you here with me, as it always is. And I'm also proud and pleased and grateful to be a part of the Texas Scorecard Network. Texas Scorecard is the sponsor of the Liberty Cafe, and they're doing great work over there, fighting for liberty for for you and for me. So go to texasscorecard.com. Look in, listen in. They have great other podcasts over there and um, and take part of what they're doing over there. Support them. They're doing great work. Well, speaking of actually Texas Scorecard, I was just on the Luke Macias show recently. So Luke has a show. I just have a podcast. He's a little higher up on the on the hierarchy of things than I am here. But it was really great because uh, we joined in with uh, a couple of other folks, uh, a Lutheran pastor and a Baptist pastor. And what we talked about over there was basically this interaction between Christianity, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of man, or the city of God and the city of man, or church and state, but basically how we as Christians are supposed to interact with the culture. That's a topic of great debate. And it's, it's something that's worthy of talking to. So I was really appreciative that Luke included me in that conversation with those, those very knowledgeable pastors who were on there, and it, it was a great conversation. So I'm not going to usurp that, or, and I was just on that today. I don't know this episode's going to be out in about two weeks uh, from today, and so it's today the 29th, and I don't know, I guess Luke's show might run before this, so I don't want to step on those toes. I'm gonna but I'm talking about something related but not the same thing that he was he was talking about. It just got into my mind as we were going through this upstairs at the world famous headquarters here of Texas Scorecard. So so what came into my mind was really a, a conversation that I'd had with um, some people at, at church. Uh, at my church we used to have a a, a men's list is just a I think a Yahoo Groups men's list. We could just email each other, and we don't have it anymore. Why we don't have it anymore is, I could go on for hours and hours and talk about that, but it's it's really really not appropriate for public discussion. But if you have any questions about it, just just contact me because it's kind of sad. But anyway, we don't have that anymore. But when we did, we actually had some really good theological discussions online. And then occasionally it also turned into a beer night or something like that, and a couple of guys would go out or we'd go over to an elder's house and have some more conversations. And so in this one conversation, as sometimes happened, I would send an email out and that would get a few people sparked up, and I've been known to cause controversy in the past. I'm trying to repent of that, but sometimes you just say the right thing and the good thing and the true thing and the honest thing and say it even in appropriate ways, and some people get upset about it. And and that's not really what happened on our men's list. But we did have differences of opinions. And so in this email to the the folks on the men's list, I I was just talking about how – because this was back during the days of of, – around COVID, the early days of COVID. And and I was telling folks that it's just not so clear to me – it wasn't then, it isn't now – that government having the power to tell people – and hospitals, you know, what surgeries they can have and when they can have them, 
even during a pandemic, because as you recall, the government was saying you can't have these election, you know, optional surgeries. Well, sometimes a, an elective surgery may seem optional to the government, but it's not really optional to you. And of course, all these other uh, things were going on. Cancer screenings weren't getting done because of all the, the problems with this. And, and people literally died from this situation. But, but I was saying, you know, so the government telling hospitals and people when they can do these things and when they can't, it's not really conducive to preserving both life and liberty for everyone in the long run. So what does that have to do with, with this? Well, I mean, preserving life and liberty is actually the function of government. That, that's why they're formed. Uh, scripture is very clear on that. And, of course, the Constitution – I'm sorry, the Declaration of the uh, United States is very clear on that. It talks about our unalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness or property, depending on whether you're quoting Thomas Jefferson or John Locke. And it says then to secure these liberties, government is instituted among men. So – Government's here to secure our life, not cause us to die. And, and so one of the things that government's supposed to do is to secure our life is to have a police force to keep pe people from killing us. But it's very far afield for the government to tell hospitals they can't do uh, they can't do a, a surgery or a procedure that is designed to secure our lives, even if it may seem optional to some. And so but the bottom line, and, and this is also what I told my friends on the email list, is that the growth of government and just these restrictions on liberty is turning away from the biblical mandate to assist our work of our work as a group of Christians and people generally to carrying out both the uh, the great commission that Jesus gave us, but also the cultural mandate that God gave all humans back in Genesis 1. And, you know, and so when government exceeds that role it's been giving, civil government exceeds the role and starts taking away from what the family government should be doing and what the church government should be doing and what individuals in governing themselves should be doing, I think it's a big problem. And so one, one of the responses I got back from uh, one of my friends on the thing was he said that, um, I'll just read it to you here, where in Scripture do we see this kind of thinking on display amongst God's people? Do Jesus or Paul or Peter in the New Testament or Abel or Daniel in the Old Testament articulate this biblical mandate? It seems to me that those who are writing God's inerrant word under the inspiration of Holy Spirit are mostly agnostic on what government whatever government happens to be in place at the time. Can you help me understand what you mean when you say the biblical mandate for government to assist our work of carrying out the Great Commission and preparing the world as a dwelling place for God with man? And I, I responded to them in, 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 in some ways, and, and I just want to respond to y'all and talk to y'all today about why God cares about government. Right? God is not – and God's people shouldn't be, be unconcerned about the type of government we have. And, and it, it's not necessarily whether it's a democracy or a republic or a monarchy, but 
the policies and laws of that type of government. And far from there being uh, agnosticism on this in the Bible, it's a very clear path. And so I just want to start in the, in the beginnings of the Bible, which is always a good place for us to start, back in Genesis 1, and walk us all the way through Revelation and just go over a couple of passages of Scripture and then and, you know, and see how that would inform us about thinking about uh, what government should look like. And, and I guess I'd entitle this episode really what liberty looks like, because if you walk from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, liberty is a key theme throughout the whole Bible. And, and what that is that liberty? Well, it's liberty from sinfulness, right? The, the liberty, the ability to repent of our sinfulness and turn back to God, turn away from Satan like Adam and Eve turned to them, turn away from that Satan and turn back to God and walk in the liberty, the freedom to do what is right before God. But of course, if we're going to walk in freedom and do what is right before God, we have to know what right is, and the only place we can go to find out what is right is Scripture. And I would suggest that Scripture tells us not only a lot about how to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ, but it also tells us how to live after we've done that. How do we live and walk in a righteous way that is pleasing to God? So let's just go and hit a couple of these Scriptures, or a few of these Scriptures, and go from there. So where where does this all begin? Well, like the world, it all begins in Genesis 1, or at least that's where it tells us about that. And God, you remember God created everything from scratch, right? There, there was ex nihilo is a, is a term. There was nothing, and then there was the universe, which is mind-boggling. And it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, why, why these people believe in the Big Bang Theory or, you know, because if there's a Big Bang Theory, well, something had to go bang. There had to be something there to go bang. And if that was the case, where did the little something, even if it's no bigger than a cork, which I think is like the, the Big Bang Theory, all the matter in the universe was the size of a cork, which is a very tiny little thing. Can't see it. And now all of a sudden it's all this stuff. Well, where did that cork come from? Where did all that matter stuffed in that one little cork-sized thing come from? And uh, the answer is, well, it, 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 well, actually what they do is they go back to the multiverse. And they say, well, really, this is just one of many universes out there. And, and, and so they don't really have to have a beginning, but there has to be a beginning. There has to be a cause and effect. So we start in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and earth, and he made everything. And, of course, that makes him not just the creator but the owner of everything. So we have to do what God tells us to do because he owns all this stuff, including us. And so what did he tell us to do? Well, in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, this is what he told us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice male and female. So he created us male and female. That means we don't get to decide whether we're male and female. God created us a certain way, and that's the way we need to stay. But that's a different podcast as well. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So depending on what tradition you're in, this could be called the cultural mandate, the, the, the uh, dominion covenant, the creation covenant. And basically it tells man, so man 
man and woman were in the Garden of Eden. God planted the Garden of Eden, but he didn't plant the rest of the world. He made the rest of the world a place for man, man and woman, and their offspring to go out and fill the earth and plant it and cultivate it and and basically move from a garden with two people to a garden city with billions and billions and billions of people. And they had to prepare all that because why did they have to do that? Well, because God was walking with man in the garden, but the whole God had given us the whole world for God for us to be with him. But we had some work to do and he had in mind that he wasn't just going to give us this place, that we, but he made us to work to prepare the place, uh, the, the whole world as a dwelling place for God with man. So that's what he told us to go do, right? Well, of course, before we even got around to doing that, uh, we sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, which means we also sinned. So we, we sin in our fathers, Adam and mothers, Adam and Eve, but we also sin in ourselves. And so that messed up the whole thing. Instead of God, so Adam was the, the ruler, the regent of the earth here in God's stead. But instead, Adam and Eve, they transferred their allegiance over to Satan by obeying him rather than God and eating of the apple or whatever fruit tree that might be. And so we failed, we, we didn't do our task, but we, we still were, we weren't really fruitful, but we multiplied and we started filling the earth, but we did it not to God's glory and not to bring him uh, and to fulfill the, the cultural mandate. And so we, we failed in that and it was terrible. And so man rebelled against God. And then a lot of people would say, some people would say that, that the angels, the, the bad angels, the satanic angels, came in and started marrying uh, women, you know, human women, and created these Nephilim. And so God came to destroy this thing because what, what Satan was doing with all this was trying to destroy the seed. So if he could get all the women to have angel babies, evil angel babies, then all of a sudden the seed who was going to redeem redeem people from their sins. Remember, God had told Eve that uh, you're going to have an offspring, and while Satan will crush will crush his or harm his heel, you will crush his head. And so Satan was out to get rid of the offspring, the seed that would come and redeem the people. And so you have all this. So God came and wiped out all these evil, wicked people, including these Nephilim and the offspring of the angels and human beings, and flooded everything and brought out people um, who weren't like that and could, again, bring the seed to the world. And so when Noah and his family got off the ark, what happened? Well, he repeated the cultural mandate to Noah just like he had uh, to to Adam and Eve. And, and God blessed Noah, it says in Genesis 9, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, very similar to what he told Adam and Eve. Well, there was still a problem out there that, that despite God's mercy and blessings, he hadn't gotten rid of evil yet because the seed hadn't come. And so there was a lot of evil in the world. And so God called for himself a people out of the whole world you know, and out of Noah's descendants, and that was Abram or later Abraham. And he, and he called Abram out of the land of Ur over in the land of Chaldea and 
And he said to him in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this obviously was the beginning of the nation of Israel. It, it took um, you know, hundreds of years for that to come about. But it's also very clear here that the, the nation of Israel was just a waypoint along the way. You know, They were going to get land, but... Ultimately, the land was going to return to the whole earth, and the people of Israel were going to be the, the beginning point for that, to take out this blessing of God being God's people to the whole world. Well, so the people you know, started, and we have a nation. They come out of Egypt after the period of uh, slavery, and then they go back into the Promised Land, and they subdue it, but they don't quite subdue it like they're supposed to, and they start getting intermarried, and then they start rebelling against God and worshiping uh, the, the Ashtoreth and, and Baal and all those kinds of things. And then, then, because they're having all these problems, they demand a king. Well, God had already promised them a king, uh, King Jesus ultimately, but King David, but they wanted a king first. So they got they got Saul, and he didn't work out well. But then finally, King David gets to the throne, and God makes a promise to King David, and here it is in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Well, of course, that is Jesus, and Jesus is not only the king of not just God's people but of the whole world because he's also God. He's also the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman who comes to crush Christ's, I mean, uh, Satan's head, right? And so we start getting to the point where we start thinking about liberty at this point again, Uh, not that we haven't before, but but with this king coming, this is going to be a king who establishes liberty and justice in the world and overcomes what Satan has been doing in this world and the you know evil and people who've been following Satan. And so that gets us over to Isaiah 61. And here's what that says. It's talking about um, Jesus. And it says, uh, and this is Jesus actually talking, although it's Isaiah 60, Isaiah is writing this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So that is what Christ brings to the world. Right? He's bringing salvation, and we have to be careful as Christians. There's Christian liberty, and then there's civil liberty. And you can't conflate the two because they're not the same. You can have civil liberty, you know, ability to, to run a business and go to the grocery store and have your surgeries. That's not the same thing as being saved. and it, it, It's different, but nonetheless, this flavor of Christian liberty, which uh, Jesus describes in here, good news to the poor, Binding up the brokenhearted. Why are they poor? Because they don't know Jesus. They don't know God. Why are they brokenhearted? Because they're brokenhearted because of their sin, and they can't get out of it, right? Why are they captives that need 
liberty because they are stuck in their sin and they can't go anywhere else. So that's the Christian liberty that he's directly talking about. But that liberty should be should be just taking over the world around us. It's the flavor of Christian liberty should also be the flavor of civil liberty and political liberty that we see in our world. And so Jesus, of course, came and he was born and he and he came to start his ministry. And where did he start his ministry? Well, in Nazareth. And and how did he start it? Well, he went into the synagogue to teach, and he read that scroll from Isaiah. He, he read the same words. He didn't read the last phrase in there, and the day of vengeance of our God, because that was to come a little bit later when he came back to destroy Jerusalem through the Roman soldiers. But, but he came to proclaim the liberty to the people in his first incarnation there. And so he sat down, he picked up the scroll, it just happened to be, coincidence I'm sure, Isaiah 61, and he read it. And then he set it down, and here's what it says in in, uh, Luke uh, chapter 4 where this takes place. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a really momentous statement, and, and we can't from this distance and I'm, even back then they probably couldn't in some ways really understand what was going on here. This promised seed that had been – the promise of which that had been given to Adam and Eve when they had broke away from God and the entire heavens and earth, the weight of them were falling on them and they were heading towards no place but death. They'd already died spiritually and they were heading towards an eternal death as well. This promise for God came, and, and Eve held on to that. Adam, I think, did too. And throughout the the, the next 4,000 years or so, depending on when exactly you think uh, the world was created and all these things happened, this remnant, of these, these gods, this remnant of God's people had been holding on to this promise. Well, right here we have Jesus declaring that he is the promised seed, and he is bringing liberty to the whole world in restoring all of creation. And that's what that's about. And so then we move on, and of course what happens is Jesus does his three years of ministries and then he's crucified. And he is he's dies on the cross. And his followers, of course, are just brokenhearted over this. But what they don't realize, and this is one thing we talked about upstairs uh, on our on the Luke Messiah show when we did that, is that that was where Christ won his victory over Satan. Our King Jesus was victorious on the cross, dying, because somebody had to die for our sins, and the only person who could do that and redeem us was somebody who was like us, human, but also perfect, very much unlike us. And so he won his victory over Satan there, and we see that and we know that, as Paul tells us, because Jesus was resurrected. And he came back and started ruling over his people. And we, we see a, a glimpse of that in, uh, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the first part of it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, here we see Jesus proclaiming his kingship over all of the, the universe. He says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, so Jesus is the ruler of all places. And he gave us our marching orders, which sounds a lot like the cultural mandate. So he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. But, of course, he doesn't tell us to make disciples of individuals. He tells us to make disciples of all nations. Right? So th- these are people groups, what we would call today countries. So Jesus is telling us to make disciples of the United States and Russia and South Co- North Korea and China. You name it, we're supposed to make disciples of those countries. And what are those countries supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to be baptized. The countries themselves, that would mean the rulers as well, they need to, um, that needs to happen in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are, we're supposed to teach them, and they are supposed to do, observe all that he has commanded us. Right? And so this is a wide cultural mandate. All right. You start at the beginning with the cultural mandate. This is still a very much a cultural mandate. And so Jesus, after this, after laying down his claim for authority, goes up to heaven. We see that in Acts where he disappears through the clouds. And if you go back to the Old Testament in Daniel, we actually see the heavenly view of that. I can't remember what chapter it is. But Jesus comes through the clouds as the lamb, the slain lamb of God. Right? And then we see... In Revelation, um, Jesus shows up there as the slain lamb of God. And so, you know, he opens the scrolls there, and then what does he do? Well, he takes his seat. And where does he take his seat? At the right hand of God. What is he sitting on? He's sitting on a throne. And what is he doing on his throne? He's ruling. But he's not ruling just over heaven. He's ruling over heaven and earth. And so he's up there enabling us, as he says here, he's with us always to the end of the age. He's enabling us and empowering us and assisting us and actually doing this through us to do carry out these commandments, these cultural mandates that, that my friend just doesn't see. But I tell you, it's there. And again, why are we doing all this? What's the end goal? Well, so that the whole earth looks like the Garden of Eden, and it's a dwelling place for God with man. And so here's the the passage at the end of the Bible that, that tells us what that looks like. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and who is it sitting on the throne? Well, I'd suggest it's Jesus. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was sitting seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So this 
appeared, you know, this is the, the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. I'd suggest to you that while this is a vision of the future, part of this has already happened because the, the New Jerusalem, that, which is, if you go through the Revelation, the New Jerusalem is just a picture of the church. And when did the church come down? Well, the church came down initially when the Holy Spirit came into the apostles and then in the people at Pentecost and, and then from there. But it also came down when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Christ brought the wrath of God upon the Jews in the temple there because they had disobeyed him. They had killed his son, and we didn't need a temple anymore because Jesus is now our temple. So we already live in the new heavens and the new earth, but it's a very incomplete, still sin-infested sort of place. But ultimately, we're going to get to this place where God dwells with man here on earth, and there will be no more death and no more mourning or no more crying or no more pain because all the former things have passed away. Well, thank you for joining us again on episode, uh, what was this, 79 of the Liberty Cafe. Glad you're being, you were here and, and hope this was just helpful in walking through an eschatology and, and a biblical perspective on God and government and really hope for the future. And also thank you also to Liberty uh, for being a sponsor of the Liberty Cafe, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. You can find more shows and great content at texasscorecard.com. Please consider leaving a review or rating the show on whatever podcasting platform you listen to.